Well, have you ever had one of those I told you so moments before? You, you know, those little moments where you look at a friend or a spouse or, or maybe one of your children and say, or maybe you wanted to say, you know, I, I told you so. I, I told you that was going to happen. I tried to think of my best I told you so moment with my dad. There were so many of them. Um, but uh, probably one of my favorites was back um, right after my junior year of college. I believe it was like 1986, 87. And um, I, I had lived for five years in Arlington, Texas. And my parents had moved to um, outside of Detroit to start an, a, their second brand new church. And uh, I stayed in Arlington that summer. I was dating a girl that lived there. And so at the very end of the summer, I was going to drive uh, from, from, from that area, Arlington, Texas, all the way to where I was going to school in Lynchburg, Virginia. And uh, that's 1,178 miles if you're keeping score in the seats. And uh, I, I was going to drive, but I, I called my dad and I said, Dad, I'm going to do this all in one shot. And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to drive it. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to spend the night anywhere. He's like, no, that's a bad idea. No, you, you don't need to do that. You've never driven that far before that long. And I'm just telling you, I'll get you a hotel. I'm like, no, man, I'm not going to buy a hotel. I don't want them to buy a hotel. I said, Dad, I'm just going to, let's save money. I'll do this. And he's like, son, that's bad. Don't, don't do this. I mean, you, you're going to start seeing double, triple. You're going to start thinking you can drive through that. And he made me promise I'd pull over and this and that. But I said, Dad, I got this. He said, son, that's a 23, 24-hour trip. I said, Dad, I'm going to do it in 19 to 20. He goes, that's a bad idea too. Don't do that. All right. So, so I started off on my journey in my 1976 Ford Granada four-door sedan. Remember the vinyl top in the back? It was rusted down, coming down from the top. You know, I bought it in South Florida. And uh, it, it was a chick wagon, man. I'm telling you that it was one of those cars. And, and so, so I start off on my journey and, and I get to the, to the state line of Virginia and I am seeing double. I mean, I'm thinking I can power through this and I'm, I'm literally like falling asleep while I drive. So I pull over and I call my dad on, on a pay phone. I said, dad, man, I can't, I don't think I can do this. I'm so tired. And sure enough, he said, son, I told you so. I, I told you that this was going to happen. And I'm like, I can't stop now because I got to be at school in a few hours. And he said, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to McDonald's and I want you to order a coffee, a large coffee. Now this is back before 21 year olds actually liked coffee. Okay. I didn't like it, and, but I thought, okay, I got to get some caffeine in me. And uh, so I did that. I, I drove through McDonald's and back in that day too, you could order a small instead of a tall or a grande or venti. You could just, I want a small coffee. And so I, I get this coffee. And, and of course, this is even before cars had cup holders. And so I, I'm, I'm getting ready to pull out and I, and I pull out of the, the, dri the drive-through at McDonald's and I put that cup down right there. And sure enough, I, that spills all over my legs and I'm on fire. And, and now I'm wide awake. All right. It's not the caffeine that's woken me up. It's my burning legs. And I was wide awake all the way from, from, uh, from there to, to school. And, and sure enough, my dad told him that he's like, man, I just, I told you so. The, these, I told you so moments, they, they may happen. You know, you, you warn your kids and we did this with our boys. Guys, if you stick a screwdriver in that light socket, bad things are going to happen. And you may have had that your kids that come up, the hair sticking straight up. And you're like, I told you so, you know, or, or when you predict what's going to happen in a movie theater, you know, you're watching before it happens and you tell everybody what, what's about to happen and you ruin the movie for everybody. You know, there's one of those, I, I told you so moments that people hate, but sometimes these, I told you so moments, they happen when you're, you're about to, about to prove to someone that you're going to do something that they didn't think was possible. I, you know, in honor of, of opening Day weekend of the greatest game ever created baseball. Um, oh yeah. Um, 
I want you to think about game three for a moment of the 1932 World Series. I may, a few of you may have been there, but, but the, the, the great Bambino, the Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash, he stands up, you know, and, and he, he points to center field before the pitch is ever thrown and he calls his shot. And sure enough, the pitcher throws the ball and he just towers a home run out of that stadium. And I bet there was that moment as the babies run around the bases, he's looking going, I told you so. I told you that was gonna happen. Well, what I wanna share with you today as we look at the Easter story is without question, the greatest I told you so moment of all, uh, all of history. It's a moment where Jesus literally called his shot. It's a, it's a moment where Jesus tells his closest friends and his followers that he's about to do the impossible. And it happens just as he said it would. This moment, as you know, happened over 2000 years ago, but it is at the very center of the foundation of our faith. It's the reason we have hope for this life and we have hope for the next life. What did Jesus tell his followers? Well, Jesus predicted to his followers, he predicted his death and his resurrection three different times. Now, a short time before the events that led to Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus is actually hanging out with his disciples and they, they go into a city, uh, city of, of Bethsaida and um, he asks his disciples a, a very important question. He says, who do people say that I am? One disciple speaks up, says, they say you're John the Baptist. Another one speaks up, says, well, they say you're Elijah the prophet. No, no, they, they just say that you're one of the prophets. And Jesus says this, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, he steps up and he answers. He says, you're the Christ. In other words, you are the Messiah. You are God's anointed one. You're the one that was spoken of in the Old Testament, the one that was gonna bring salvation to the Jewish people. Now, this was a huge game-changing moment for Jesus and his disciples because this moment now became the anchor to their relationship with him. It changed the way that Jesus taught them. It changed the way that he now related to them. Before this moment, they didn't quite get it. They didn't understand what he was all about. And, and beyond that, in spite of miracle after miracle, the majority of the people of Jerusalem had already failed to discern Jesus's true identity. The religious leaders of Jerusalem had already strongly voiced their opposition to Jesus and, and passionately denied that he was the Messiah. But out of Peter's confession, Jesus begins to teach what it means and what it meant for him to be the Messiah. He, he, he starts off by declaring his mission for coming to earth. Mark chapter eight, verse 31 records it. And it says, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now the Bible says that, that when Peter heard this, he took Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke Jesus for predicting his death. And, 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 and how does Jesus respond to Peter? Four very famous words. You may have said these words to your children at some point. Get behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter, you, you're not speaking for God right now. You have actually become the mouthpiece of Satan who desperately wants to divert Jesus from the cross. Jump a chapter beyond that. Mark chapter nine, Jesus is traveling with his disciples somewhere in the region of Galilee. We don't know exactly where. And he makes a second announcement of his death. Mark nine thirty one. he says, for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man is gonna be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Now, the Bible tells us that the disciples here, they, they did, now, now they don't understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. And they're too afraid to say anything at this point because they probably remembered how Jesus had just rebuked Peter. Then we get into Mark 10, another chapter. 
and we find Jesus is walking into Jerusalem with his disciples. And the Bible says that his disciples are astonished. They're actually afraid because they know that Jesus is walking into danger and they're astonished that he's walking into, into danger with such determination and they're scared to death because they know that Jesus is walking into Jerusalem to die. Let's pick up in verse 33. Jesus says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And Jesus says, after three days, he will rise. Three times, Jesus makes the exact same prediction and each time he adds a little bit more detail and each time he gives them the same exact message of hope. He says, after three days, I will rise. Now, that prediction didn't stay within that little circle of disciples. No, that prediction was actually common knowledge outside of Jesus's followers. In Matthew chapter 27, one day after Jesus has been crucified and buried in a tomb, the chief priests of the Jews and the Pharisees, out of fear that someone's gonna try to steal Jesus's body and fabricate some crazy resurrection story, they go over to the, the Roman leader who was over Jerusalem at the time, a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate, and they ask him, would you seal the tomb? I mean, there, this may be the only time that a man had his, his tomb sealed because they were afraid of him coming out. And they say in Matthew chapter 27, sir, we remember how that, that this imposter said while he was still alive after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Now, if there was one thing that the religious leaders of Jerusalem feared more than a pre-crucifixion Jesus, it was a resurrected Jesus. See, see you, can, you can arrest a pre-crucifixion Jesus. You can, you can beat him and flog him. You can spit on and you can mock that Jesus. You can, you can make this Jesus carry a cross up a hill. You can nail this Jesus to a cross and, and toss a spear through his side. You can kill this Jesus, but a resurrected Jesus is a whole nother story, right? whole nother story. Because if this Jesus resurrects from the dead, it's going to mean a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. A resurrected Jesus means that the Messiah has come and to these Jewish leaders, uh-oh, we've killed him. A resurrected Jesus means that the Messiah didn't come to save the Jews from the Romans. That wasn't his purpose. Instead, he came to rescue the world from their sins. We just, had, we just read how Jesus predicted his own death and his resurrection. He told exactly how it was going to take place. But you need to know that Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years before that even happened, Isaiah was talking about it. He was writing about it. Israel's greatest king, King David in Psalm chapter uh, uh, 22, over, he, he talked about it over a thousand years before it actually happened. Religious people outside of Jesus' circle were well aware of what Jesus had predicted that three days he would rise from the dead. You say, how did Jesus' words play out? Well, we know that First of all, Jesus died a cruel death on a cross. Now the crucifixion is, is probably one of the most brutal and torturous methods of death ever devised by man. However, even before Jesus ever went to the cross, he, he experienced incredible trauma. Now I know that this happened on Friday, but I wanna, I wanna kinda, if we could paint the whole picture of what took place on this weekend. During the trial with Caiaphas in the book of Matthew, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, they, they spit on Jesus. They beat him. They, 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 they slapped him around. They mocked him. They insulted him. He was turned over to the Roman soldiers who twisted up a, a crown of thorns and, and they crammed it down on his head. And the Bible says they actually began to 
pluck hairs out of his beard. Then Jesus was scourged. He was whipped with a whip that had nine long strands of leather and each strand would have had sharp pieces of bone and bits of leather tied to the end of him. He was whipped 39 times. And listen, you can only imagine the pain and agony that this caused him. Then they, then they, they made him carry a, his cross down the, a street in Jerusalem, a street called the Via Della Rosa. And he carried it outside the city walls and he began to go up a hill. But, but, but when the fatigue and, and blood loss became too much for him, the soldiers reached into a crowd and they pulled this man out of the crowd, an African man named Simon of Cyrene, and they forced him to carry Jesus' cross the rest of the way. When he got up to the top of the hill, they, they put the cross down on the ground and they, lead, they laid Jesus upon it. And, and there they drove nails through his feet, nails through his, his hands, probably through, right through the middle of these, these bones and his wrists. I mean, I can't even imagine the pain. On a very, the very top of the cross, they hung a sign. It was a, it was a written notice of the charges against him. And the sign read, the king of the Jews, it was there to mock him, to, to kind of entice, the, the, to get the, the Jews all riled up. As a person would hang on the cross, they would, they would attempt to push themselves up by that nail just so they could breathe because a lot of times people who died on a cross would actually suffocate. And if they hung there too long, the, the Roman soldiers would then break, would, would eventually break their legs, but they didn't break Jesus's legs. Instead, they threw a spear through his side to see if he, he had died. Jesus hung on the cross from 9 a.m. in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon. Mark chapter 15, verse 37 tells us that after six long excruciating hours on the cross with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath. His body was then taken down from the cross. It was prepared for burial by a, name, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And then it was placed in, in his tomb. He, he allowed Jesus to use it. And we look at the death on, on that cross and we're, we're moved by the cruelty and the severity of it. But please, but please don't miss for a moment the worst part of what actually happened that day. Because as hard as it was for Jesus to endure the cross, the most painful part of the whole experience was the fact that Jesus took the sins of every person that would ever live upon himself. The Bible says he actually became sin. A man who had never sinned actually became sin. But think about that for just a moment. Think of what that had to have looked like. Every sin that had ever been committed, was being committed that day and would be committed in the future was placed on Jesus as he hung there. Murder was tossed on him. Adultery was placed on him. Lying and cheating was placed on him. Stealing and lust and idolatry and racism and bigotry and, and hatred and pride. It was, it was all placed upon Jesus on the cross. Even the little the sins that we think are like little tiny infractions, things like, you know, like the little white lie or the fudge on the taxes or, the, or that little word of gossip or that moment of disrespect that we may have towards our parents or authority figures. God put it all on Jesus. You name the sin. It was on the cross with Jesus. Now think about this for a moment. All Jesus had ever known up to this moment was close personal intimacy with his father in heaven. And now God, the father, I mean, he can't even look down upon Jesus because of the sin. All he, all he sees is the most grotesque, disgusting, obscene, massive sin the world has ever seen. And because God is so holy, he can't even look upon sin. And at this moment, he turns his back on Jesus and he completely cuts off communion with him for the very first time. It's like someone flipped the light switch off and Jesus just hung there in total spiritual darkness 
The father had abandoned the son, turned his back on him. That's why Jesus said in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, Jesus cried out, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But everything happened just as Jesus said it would. Everything happened as the Old Testament prophets said it would. And you say, why did this happen? Well, the Bible says that the only thing that can pay for sin is death. For centuries in, in, in the Old Testament, once a year on, on Passover, Jewish rabbis, they would, they would kill a perfect, perfect lamb and they would sprinkle its blood upon the altar as a sacrifice for, this, for the sins of the Jewish people. But it would only be, be temporary because no animal, no sacrifice would ever be enough. No lamb, no bird, no goat, no calf would ever be enough to fulfill what God demanded for sin, which was a perfect sacrifice, a blood offering. And so Jesus, the perfect sacrificial lamb of God, he took your sin and he took my sin and and the sins of every person that has ever lived and he took it upon himself on the cross. Jesus paid sin's price for you, which was death. He gave a blood offering. You say, why would he do this? He did it out of love. He did it out of love. I mean, if you've ever wondered if God really loves you, if you've ever wondered if God really cares for you, all you have to do is take a look at the cross. Jesus didn't just pay for your sins. He made a way for you to have a personal relationship with God the Father. Without this, listen, you know that the chasm between God and us without Jesus was way too big to cross. But it gets even better. Because Jesus didn't stay on that cross and he certainly didn't stay in the grave. He miraculously resurrects from the grave. On Sunday morning, three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, a woman by the name of Salome, they show up to the tomb of spices. They wanna, they wanna anoint Jesus's body. And when they get there, they, they notice that there's a, that, that huge stone that had been placed in front of the grave to seal the tomb has now been rolled to the side. And so they decide to take a closer look. They actually begin to walk into the tomb. And I want to pick up on Mark's words in Mark 16. It says, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. And the Bible says they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. What's going on here? These three women have an encounter with an angel. An angel is sitting at the entrance of the tomb and they tell these women that Jesus is risen. He is gone and he'll meet you on ahead in Galilee. And how do these women respond? The Bible says, they respond with trembling and astonishment. They're blown away. They are so afraid that for a while they, they, they don't say anything to anyone. Now, this is the greatest I told you so moment in all of, all of, history, of the, history of the world. And this angel then takes a little jab at these women and says, everything's happened just as he told you. I told you, he told you. Now, what does that mean for you here today? What does that mean for you on April 1st 2018 here in Dallas, Georgia, sitting here in Westridge Church. What does that mean? First of all, you just need to know that Jesus is alive. I love these words from Mark 16. We just read them. It says, he isn't here. He has risen from the dead. You say, how, is it, how important is that that Jesus Christ, Christ resurrected from the dead and is alive today? You need to know it is the, it is the centerpiece 
right at the center of the foundation of the Christian faith. Without, without it, everything we believe as followers of Jesus just falls apart. It falls down like a house of cards. Because if Jesus hadn't come out of that grave fully alive, we wouldn't even need to be here this morning. Matter of fact, we don't need to come for the rest of, our, the rest of time we're here on this earth. We can, we can call up Paulding County and Dave Carmichael and say, hey, we're gonna sell this building to you. It'll be an awesome you know, place for you to have a theater and a rec center and all that stuff. A few years ago, Newsweek magazine did an article on the resurrection and they wrote this. They said, the risen Christ is the center of the Christian faith, the mystery without which there would be no church, no hope for eternal life, no living Christ to encounter today. No historical figure has ever made the claim that he was raised from the dead. It was his appearance, that, uh, that of the, the resurrected Christ that lit the flame of the Christian faith. It wasn't the morality of the Sermon on the Mount, which actually enabled Christianity to conquer Roman paganism, but it was the belief that Jesus was alive. He had been raised from the dead. See, listen, Easter is not some memorial to a nice religious teacher that lived over 2,000 years ago. It's a celebration of the proof that he's alive. The, The resurrection is proof of the power of God. And you need to know that this weekend, millions of people all over the world are gathering. They're gathering right now. They're gathering in, in, modern, in modern buildings just like this. They're, they're, they're gathering in old cathedrals. They're gathering in little chapels out in the woods. They're gathering in mud huts. They're gathering in undercover places like back rooms and caves and places like, like Cuba and, and China and Iraq. Or they're gonna gather around living rooms or kitchen tables this morning. Or they're gonna gather on beaches, beach services. Or or they're gathering right now in front of TV screens or computer monitors. And they're celebrating the fact that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we are living testaments of that power. Amen. Jesus, Jesus said it would happen and it did just like he said. The tomb is empty. Death has been defeated. Jesus conquered the cross and the grave all in three days and he did it all just for you, just for you. And today, because of that, I want you to know that you can move from spiritual death to spiritual life. There is hope beyond this life. We can move from spiritual darkness to spiritual life. We can move from fear to faith. We can move from defeat to victory because Jesus is alive today. And you need to know also that because all of this happened, you need to know that Jesus keeps his promises. You can trust what he has said. You know, I know it's tough today, especially today, to find somebody who keeps their promises. And so many of you are here and maybe you've been hurt by a parent or a spouse or a friend, maybe even another pastor who, who didn't keep a promise to you. I want you to know that God is a promise keeper. He is batting a thousand when it comes to, to keeping his promises. Back in 1953, there was a professor of mathematics and astronomy, a guy by the name of Dr. Peter Stoner, he decided that, that he would calculate the probability of the prophecies in the Bible concerning Jesus. He, they were, they're called, actually called the messianic prophecies. And Dr. Stoner said that the probability that eight prophecies from the Old Testament could be fulfilled in one lifetime by one man is, is, is ten, you'd add, take 10 and put 17 zeros behind it, the probability of that is one in the words quadrillion. Eight or 16 prophecies that, that Jesus is truly the Messiah. The probability of that is, is, is one and then 10 and add 45 zeros behind it. The probability of 48 prophecies 
is, is one in 10 with 157 zeros behind it. That's the probability. You say, how many messianic prophecies are in the Bible that Jesus has fulfilled? 108. You say, maybe it was all just a big accident, like a big April Fool thing. Listen, accidental fulfillment is just beyond the realm of possibility. So when Jesus knew the, he knew the prophecies, he actually was the one that wrote the Bible. He could have never planned where he would have been born. He could have never planned how he would be betrayed. He could have never planned how he would die. And yet it was all foretold thousands of years before it actually happened. God says, this is how it's gonna happen. And it did just as he told us. And you may have some trust issues here today. Someone's broken some promises to you and they've wounded you deeply. You don't know if you can ever trust again. God's a promise keeper. You can take him at his word. And the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is living proof of that. You can trust him. Now you may be saying, yes, but Brian, what if I put my faith and my trust in Jesus and then I let him down? You also need to know that Jesus is patient and merciful with you. I wanna wanna give you a little insight into what kind of savior Jesus is. If you would just let me do that for a moment. Think about what were the first words that Jesus spoke from the cross. And think about this now. At the bottom of the foot of the cross are people who have just just been yelling at him, insulting him, people that that were spitting on him, Roman soldiers who who have just put a crown of thorns, who, who, who have nailed him to a cross. I mean, what were the first words that Jesus spoke from the cross? They were words of forgiveness. Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Think for a moment, Look, think about the instructions that the angels gave these three women at the, at the entrance of the tomb. Mark 16, seven, let me read it again. But go and tell his disciples and underline Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, I wanna, I wanna just point out the fact that there was one man singled out from the rest, from the rest of the, the other 10 his name's Peter. You say, why, why was Peter mentioned? Why was he singled out? Because right after Jesus was arrested, one of his closest friends, one of his closest followers denied him three times, actually denied that he even knew Jesus. And yet Jesus leaves instructions to tell his disciples, especially Peter, to meet him on ahead in Galilee. Think for a moment of how Jesus responded to the disciples, their doubts and their fears of seeing him after the resurrection for the very first time. He looks at these men and he, in Luke 24, he says, guys, why are you so troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? He says, look at, look at my hands, look at my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I can have. All that means is that he is patient, he is merciful, he is loving, he's forgiving. It is not in his plan that anyone dies without an opportunity to receive his forgiveness and love. So what is happening here today? I want you to know that if you have never received salvation before in your life, or maybe you have and you're away from God, I want you to know that Jesus is pursuing you this morning. It is no mistake that you're here. God is sovereign that way. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. His purpose for coming to this earth was to rescue you. His purpose for for dying on the cross and rising from the dead was to save you from being eternally lost. And you may have walked in here going, I'm too lost. I'm a hopeless case, Brian. You have no idea what I've done. In Matthew 18, Jesus asks his followers a question. 
He says, if a shepherd had a, had a hundred sheep and, and one of those sheep wandered away from the rest of the flock, wouldn't he leave the 99 to go find the one that's wandered off? And then he says this, he says, and if he finds it, he is happier about the one sheep that is found than the 99 that have not wandered off. You may be that one sheep that's wandered away from the rest of the 99. God is pursuing you this morning. Jesus puts great value on your life so much that he'd leave the 99 to, to find you. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart that he has for you today. You are never too lost to be found. You are never too far away to be rescued. And he's pursuing you today. And he's offering you grace. Jesus is offering you grace. God offers you grace that is greater than all of your sin. It's a grace that none of us deserve. He offers you saving grace. You say, why would I need saving grace? Because without it, you're spiritually lost. Sin is, has you living in spiritual darkness. Sin has, has you eternally separated from God. And you need to know that sin will lead you to eternal death. Sin will lead you into hell. But Romans 5, 8 Oh, the good news says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. At our very worst, Jesus died for us. So because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, I want you to know today that grace offers you forgiveness. It offers you life. Grace offers you hope for eternity. Grace offers you promise of eternity in heaven. It's that looking ahead to the return of Christ. It's one of the, the prophecies that has yet to be fulfilled, but it will happen as God says it will happen. It is a guarantee. So how do I respond? How, how do we respond to all this today? Well, if you are a follower of Christ Jesus, you, you know that there was a moment that your life was changed when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you're a believer, a follower. We need to, we need to get on mission and tell the world what Jesus has done for them. The last thing Jesus told his followers to do before he ascended into heaven, he said, listen, I want you to go into all of the world and I want you to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them everything that I've told you to teach them. And then he promised all of us that he would be with us as we do that. This, this weekend, we actually have three of our global partners in, in, in town. I love this. Kevin and Mandy Darnell and their kids are here from Spain. Bob and Courtney McGregor, their kids are home in furlough, serving in Thailand. John, John and Betty Arnold love this couple, serving in Burkina Faso, Africa. These are folks who have given their lives to take in the message of Jesus to, to some of the toughest places in the world, some of the darkest places. And it's inspiring when you're around them. But here's the truth. We are all called to be missionaries. Every single one of us. We're, we're called to go into our schools. We're called to go into the, the, the places where our kids play ball, the gyms where they, where, they, where they wrestle or whatever that looks like. We're called to go into the workplace. We're called to go into our neighborhoods. We're called to go into our families. And we're called to go in to share God's saving grace and how he's changed our lives. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, that should be our response today. That's our, that's our commission. But if you're here today, and, and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to be your personal savior. Here's how I'm asking you to respond today. Believe in him and receive salvation. Believe in him and receive salvation. John chapter 11 tells a story. Jesus raising a friend from the dead. But before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he, he tells Lazarus' sister Martha, 
He says, it's going to happen. I just want you to know that I'm about to raise him from the dead. And Martha says, I know one day that, that Lazarus is going to rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's thinking about future times when Jesus is going to come back. And Jesus says to her, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? The words of Jesus, believe in me and experience spiritual life, even though one day you're gonna physically die. Everyone who believes in Jesus, Jesus says will never die spiritually. And my question to you today is, do you believe that? Do you believe this? You say, I I wanna believe. I wanna believe, but I'm not even sure what that really means. I wanna tell you what it means today. It means that God created you and he loves you deeply. You were created to be loved by him. You need to know that. You need to know that mankind rebelled against God by sinning against him and that that sin was passed down to you. I mean, if you've, you think about your kids for a moment, when your, your son or daughter turned about two years old, you looked at them and said, what in the world just happened there? They just sinned. How did that happen? That little one was a born a sinner. Hard to believe, as cute as they are at two years old. They're not really that cute at two. No, they're cute, all right? They, they've just got the sin thing going on. Listen, because they were born with a sin nature. And you need to know that that sin has separated you, separated us from God. And the penalty for sin is eternal death. And there is absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself from your sin. Not religion, not good works, not wealth, not education, not morality. You can't buy it. Being born into the right family in the right part of the country, it's not gonna happen for you. And God knew this. And so out of great love for us, great love for you, great love for me, he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life on earth, to die on the cross, to take my punishment, to take yours, to be buried and to rise from the dead three days later just like he said he would. And so by faith, as you receive this gift of grace, you confess your sins to God. You confess that Jesus Christ is the son of God and you receive grace and you receive God's forgiveness and his free gift of salvation. And you ask Jesus Christ to be your savior. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you've never made that decision before, I want to give you that opportunity right now to, to cross that line of faith. Now, here, here's my concern. Over the last many years, I've been a pastor for almost 30 years now. I've had so, I'll have a conversation with someone. I'll say, hey, have you ever put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? You know, like they'll say to me, I, I've, well, I've, all, I've actually always been saved. No, you haven't. Or, or, or listen, you know, Brian, I'm a good person. I'm a, I'm a good person. And I know that somehow my good works are gonna, are gonna get me there. And I'm like, no, they're not. If they could, there would be no need for Jesus to do what he did for us. Didn't need to happen. Or, or, or you know, Brian, I, I was born in this Christian family over here. So I, I'm, I'm a Christian. No, you're not. You stand alone before Jesus. And you ask the question, you answer the question, do do you believe this? Do you believe this? And if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, 
If, if you're relying on some decision that you made when you were little that you hardly remember, and you're looking back on that, and there's been nothing in your life that, that says anything that you're a follower of Jesus. Listen, I want to tell I'm not telling you you're saved or not, but I have great concern. I'm, I'm concerned for you. Make that right today. Would you bow your head with me for just a moment? And would you pray with me? If you need to make that decision today to receive salvation, would you say something like this? Lord, Lord today, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe that he died on a cross for me. I believe he rose again. I believe that he's the only way that I can come to you. He paid for my sins. Lord, I, for, Lord, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I confess to you, Lord, that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I repent of my sins and I put my, all of my faith and my trust, not in me or anything else, but in Jesus Christ alone. And I receive salvation today by faith. What Jesus Christ did for me on the cross was enough. And I receive this gift of grace, Lord, by faith. And I ask you to be my savior. Would you do that for me today? In Jesus' name, amen.